Welcome, welcome to the first Hot Topics. Yay! There we go. Um, you are allowed to keep eating and drinking throughout, that's fine, as long as you don't eat too noisily. Or if, if you choose to eat noisily, just you will probably be heard on camera at some point eating very noisily, so just be aware of that. But um, yeah, feel free to keep eating. The, the idea today is we're going to do kind of four 30-minute blocks, um, and each of those blocks will involve bit of upfront teaching um, and either some Q&A or a group activity so um, there'll be some interaction and and stuff to go on but I'll start in prayer and uh, and then we'll we'll kick off father thank you for uh, thank you for the fact that we get to gather together today thank you for this morning thank you for everything that we learned from your word and the, the amazing way that you love us and want to be uh, in such an intimate relationship with us. And Father, I pray that everything that we look at today would go towards furthering that, Lord, that it would be, it would be something that, that make, I pray today would make our hearts uh, sing for joy, that it would make us uh, want to delight in your word, Lord God. I pray that we'd go away from here um, having learnt stuff, but loving Jesus more. Lord, that's our aim is that we would know you more as a result of today. I pray that you'd help us to engage, to understand, you'd help me to be clear and uh, that we would do everything for the glory of Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay, so what we're doing today is a little bit of a foundational thing. So there are, uh, you remember I sent out a bit of a survey a while ago asking what are the big topics or questions that you guys may have and you wanted a bit more teaching into. Um, and we're going to deal with many of those over the next year and a half or so, however long we we run these but um, what we're going to do today is a bit more of a kind of foundational one if we get today straight then we'll be thinking the right way about the other ones whereas if we don't get today straight we might approach the various topics and questions that you have in a slightly skewed way um, so if you've been a member of Rev for a while you'll realize that we massively value the Bible welcome come in um, we massively value the Bible so we preach from the Bible every Sunday we study the Bible in small groups um, and so on and um, the question today is, why do we do that? Why do we emphasize the Bible so much? Why do we believe the Bible is God, God's word? And why do we spend so much of our time delighting in it and teaching it and wanting to live by it? So today is not so much about what the Bible says as what the Bible is. So we're going to be talking about this book today. We're talking about why do we believe it's God's word? Why do we believe that it has, it has some kind of say over our lives? Why do we talk about stuff like the authority of scripture? What does it mean to say that the Bible's true? So those are the kind of things we're looking at today. And getting today straight, like I said, is foundational for everything else. Because if you take another... So next, next topic we're going to look at is um, part of um, some of your questions on sexuality and gender. The starting point we have on this particular topic today will dictate the way that we approach the next topic and the one after. So it's really, really important to think that through. And so hopefully you guys are up for some thinking today. I don't apologise for the fact that there will be some thinking involved, there will be some discussing involved. And um, how we're going to structure today is four sessions, so we're going to look at what did Jesus believe about the Bible, first of all, that's kind of where we have to start, really as Christians, what does Jesus say about the Bible. We're then going to look at four key things that are true of the Bible in the session afterwards. We're then going to look at the idea of how does the Bible actually work. So what is the Bible? How does it work? How does it actually influence our lives? Um, and then for just some practical tips on reading the Bible. So that's where we're going, just so you can kind of prepare yourself. And um, just so you know, I'll be using the words the Bible, the scriptures, scripture interchangeably, because that's often the way that the Bible itself uses them. In fact, the, the idea of the scriptures is quite a prominent idea, because this is, yes, a book, but it's a book made up of many 
books, which is why it's often called the writings or the scriptures. So just so you know, if I'm talking about the Bible, the scripture, the scriptures, I'm talking about the same thing. All sound good? You ready? Yeah. So let's start with Jesus. Um, As Christians, we're fundamentally those who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is Lord of the world which kind of means that whatever Jesus says goes, really. If you've got someone who has been raised from the dead and claims to be Lord of the world, uh, that, I mean, that's a pretty good reason to believe that that person is Lord of the world if they've actually been raised from the dead after three days. So assuming that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is Lord of the world, which we w- if we are Christians here today, we will assume that that is true, then we should take what he says about scripture as kind of our bottom line. So we're going to do it that way around rather than starting with, well, what about this potential problem with scripture? What about this potential problem? Because if we start with Jesus and what he believed, then we'll approach the scriptures assuming that what Jesus said is true. And therefore, when we come across a a problem, we will assume that it's true and we'll just have to figure out how to think about that problem. Whereas if we start with the problems, we might never get out of it. So that's the way around we're, we're going to do it. So the big question is, what did Jesus say about the scriptures so here's a bit of audience participation needed any anyone want to just shout out a few things you you can think off the top of your head i I remember jesus saying this about the bible in in the gospels in his teaching any thoughts yeah you can just shout them out but hands up are great (laughs) go for it all scriptures God breathe. Okay, so we got that that statement. That's um, Second Timothy three sixteen, famous verse that we'll be looking at later. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Excellent. So he said he's meeting with the disciples on the road to Emmaus after he's been raised from the dead, um, and he says, "You're slow, so slow to believe that all the scriptures said about me." He said, "All of the scriptures ultimately are pointing to me." Excellent. Yeah. Anything else, Alex? You had a suggestion. No, you didn't. <laughs> was that it? Anyone else? Sorry? In the beginning was the word? Yeah, so Jesus himself, the fact that he's called the word, I think is quite significant. Okay, Jesus is called the word, and we're talking about the word of God if we're talking about the Bible. So the ultimate word is Jesus, and the word that we have here ultimately points towards him. Excellent. Anything else that Jesus said? Yeah? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not a single dot or iota from the law will pass away. Law, he'd be referring to the first few books of the Bible and the prophets. So the Old Testament, he said, none of that's going to pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But until that happens, none of this is going to pass away. So in other words, he's saying the scriptures will, they go on. For the whole of this age, they are, the scriptures will not pass away. Yep. Anything else? One more, maybe. He does quote scripture a lot. You read the Gospels, you realise Jesus is someone who knew his, what we have as the Old Testament. He knew that really, really well and quoted it a lot. One particular instance in which he quotes it is actually when he's being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And the devil says, okay, well, why don't you make bread out of these stones? If you're really the son of God, why don't you make bread out of these stones? And Jesus responds to that temptation um, by saying, it is written Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the assumption that Jesus had about the scriptures, which, yes, are the Old Testament, we'll talk about the New Testament in a second, is that if the Old Testament scriptures say that you have to do something, then you should do it. That's kind of, he just responds to the devil by saying, it is written. End of story. Lump it. That's the way that Jesus thought about the scriptures. Um, Another thing he says, John 10, 35, he says, the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus said, if something is broken, it's not the scriptures. Therefore, if the scriptures say something, I should obey it. 
and you guys should as well, is kind of what he's saying. So the assumption that Jesus had was that the scriptures were true and should be obeyed if they commanded us to do something. So you might have a bit of an objection to this. You could say, well, isn't that just circular? You're using the Bible to tell us what Jesus says about the Bible. Which, yeah, I, I, I agree, that can sound circular. The reason that I don't think it is circular is that ev- whether or not people believe that Jesus actually said those words. So you could be a skeptic, but a, a historian who's a skeptic, whether or not you believe that Jesus literally said those words or not, a first century Jewish man would have assumed that the Old Testament was inspired by God. So let's assume Jesus rose from the dead and that's true. And let's just assume that Jesus was a first century Jewish man, which he was. He would have believed that the Old Testament scriptures were inspired by God and true. So I think it's not completely circular. It would be circular if I was just saying the Bible says so, therefore it's true. But actually, this just makes it makes sense in terms of what we know of what first century Jewish people would have believed. So Jesus as a first century Jewish man, but as much more than that, says the Bible cannot be broken. And so I think at that point, that means the assumption that we should have is that the Bible is God's word, is authoritative, is true for us. Now, potential other objection, what about the New Testament? Because when Jesus says that, he's obviously talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And so here's just a a few reasons why I would assume that the New Testament, the same kind of rules apply. And again, it starts with Jesus. The New Testament writers are all either followers of Jesus. So they're either apostles, people who have been explicitly sent out by Jesus to proclaim the good news, or they're close associates of those apostles. So Jesus has told these people I want you to go and preach this message about me and I want you to go and write um, this message about me. So they are envoys of Jesus. They're not just random people who happen to meet Jesus once or twice. That gives a certain amount of weight to what they're writing. A second thing is the New Testament writers often show an awareness that they're writing something on God's behalf. When you read some of Paul's letters that he's writing to churches, you don't get the impression Paul's just saying, this is my general opinion on stuff. You get the impression he's saying, if Jesus were here I'm pretty sure he would say this in fact I'm pretty sure he would say this that's the impression you get when you read a lot of the New Testament writings so that's kind of second step the New Testament writings themselves refer to other New Testament writings as scripture so 2 Peter 3.16 talks about um, Paul's writings so Peter's writing this he says our beloved brother Paul has written to you some of the things that he wrote, wrote are quite difficult to understand which should be an encouragement to all of us Said, and, uh, and some people who are wicked distort them twist and twist those words as they do the other scriptures. So Peter is considering that Paul's letters are on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. So the New Testament itself witnesses to that. Then there's the testimony of the early church. So despite what Dan Brown says, second reference to Dan Brown today, <laughs> Dan Brown da Vinci Code says, oh, the New Testament writings were decided at the, the Council of Nicaea in 321 AD. Nonsense. That the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the Bible, by the way. So when he says that, he has no idea what he's going on about. But the, the New Testament scriptures weren't decided upon. They were recognized. You read the church fathers, the early church um, leaders, and you realize they're not saying we had a big discussion about which particular books should be included in the New Testament. What they did is they validated which books were assumed to be scripture already so they were recognized rather than appointed and i think that makes a big difference and they were very carefully scrutinized they weren't just careless they went through a lot of processes to make sure that the books that they were uh, they were acknowledging to be scripture were actually written by the people who claimed to have written them that they were actually teaching 
the same gospel as they knew that the earliest apostles had. So there's a lot of scrutiny that went into it, and they've stood the test of time. I think the fact that the canon of the New Testament, canon which means basically the collection of books we have in the New Testament, the fact that that stood the test of time, I think is quite telling in and of itself. It stood the whole of church history, that particular group of 27 writings has stood the test of time. And I think quite important is also the witness of the Holy Spirit. So I'm sure many of us here have experienced when we've read the New Testament or the Old Testament, God speaking to us and God basically authenticating that his word is actually from him. When you read it and you think that, that I know that that's true. I can't explain it, but I know that that is true. And the Holy Spirit is witnessing with us that that is actually true. So there we go. That's not Obviously, we don't have masses and masses of time to go into it, but there's briefly how I would say that the New Testament, we should operate with the same assumption. So Jesus assumed the Old Testament scriptures were inspired by God and were God's word, and therefore if they told us to obey it, then we should. And I think if we want to follow Jesus, then we'd be in a very dangerous position to say that he was wrong on that issue. And the second half of that is that the New Testament is written by people who follow Jesus, and actually the, the careful work that was put into writing those documents on God's behalf, I think, make me at least, and Christians worldwide, convinced of the fact... What is going on? Is that a fire on? I know. No, I think that's fine. Anyway, so that, com- that convinces me, and it's convinced many, many other Christians throughout history, that both Old Testament and New Testament should be approached as God's word. So that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour. 15 minutes is not much to talk about Jesus' view of Scripture. Um, so what I'd like us to do now is think a little bit more about it in, in groups. So maybe in threes, fours, you can kind of turn around and so on. And what I'd like you to do is to look at Psalm, sorry? Uh, look at Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. Jesus would have assumed that what these verses say about Scripture is true. So I'd like you to have a look at those and think through how do those verses encourage you And how do they challenge you in the way that you read the Bible? Do you think of the Bible or or God's word in this particular way? How do they challenge you? How do they encourage you? So let's spend five, ten minutes um, thinking about that. Then we'll gather back together and hear what you've, uh, you've come up with. So that's Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. So anyone, anyone want to kind of put themselves out there and say here's here's something I found encouraging about that particular way of looking at God's words. Don't all rush at once. That's great. I don't think of you as simple. That's my mum, by the way. Most of you are wondering. I have to say that or I'll get. Great. Any anything else that encourage people? I love the more to be desired than gold. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Just, uh, it's just it's just interesting to ask yourself how how do I desire God's word? How yeah. Do I, how do I chase after it, or do I do I just tick box it, or do I actually you know do I actually believe? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, the the heart issue, isn't it? It's kind of like it's not just I know objectively this is a good book to read. Like I don't know, going to school, a, a subject you're not too interested in. I know objectively it's good, whereas this is no this this is something more to be desired than gold. You think of the gold rush. There's a reason it's called the gold rush. Everyone was rushing to get this gold because they really wanted it. 
And the psalmist here, I think, it's, yeah, David here is writing, it's more to be desired than gold. Brilliant. Any, anything else that people wanted to come in terms of encouragement? Yeah. Yeah. Gives joy. It's, it's something that will produce joy ultimately. Um, it's so that, yeah, I mean, the, God wants us to be happy. I know that that can get caricatured and twisted in weird ways, but God wants us to be truly happy. And so anything that we can avail ourselves of that leads towards that goal is going to be a good thing. And scripture is a central way in which God gives us true, lasting joy. Yeah. Any challenges that, that you thought, wow, that, that challenged me about the way that I think about the Bible? Maybe that it was both encouraging and challenging. But, yeah. I'm struck by just uh, kind of sharing with love. This is what the law is, and this is what it does on you. Yeah. And this is what the law is, and this is what it does on you. And just realizing it still does have a profound effect on me as a person, changing me and yeah. reviving me and giving me wisdom and rejoicing in my heart. Yeah. And just not forgetting that it actually has a profound effect on me as well. Yeah. Yeah. And whether you're aware of it or not, we'll touch on this a bit later, but I, I know Steph's used this, this illustration a few times. How many meals do you remember eating? Probably not that many, but all of them were really important. All of them had an effect on you. I mean, some of them might have had a bad effect on you, depending on what you were eating. <laughs> but assuming it was good stuff, that would have had a good, good effect on you. Um, yeah, maybe one more. Any, anyone want to suggest another challenging thing? Yeah. You can go for it anyway. Yeah. Mm, in, in, keep, in keeping them, there is great reward. In, in the very act of keeping that, that, actually, that, that it brings a... So it's not just the reward that you will get as a result of faithfulness to God, but there's something about the very keeping of God's word itself that is rewarding. That's great. What translation is that? Uh, NLT. NLT. Okay, yeah. We'll talk a bit about translations later. Um, so that, that's cool. Um, great. What we're going to do is we're going to move on to the, the, the next topic. Today's going to feel a little bit kind of like, well, we're going through stuff quite quickly because, I mean, you could spend days talking about this kind of thing, but we want to just make sure we've got some good foundations in there. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about, um, we kind of covered Jesus's view of scripture, which should be what our view of scripture is, really. So if Jesus says it, we'll believe it. That's, that's kind of where we end up landing. Um, but let's kind of dig a little bit deeper into that. Bearing that in mind, what are some key things that are true of scripture? So I'm going to look at four key markers or four key aspects of um of scripture and I've got a few visual aids to help me for this so you can remember it um so the first of those we're going to look at is the idea that scripture is authoritative scripture is authoritative and uh, the visual aid that I have for this is much to my embarrassment I've only passed my driving license relatively recently and if you have a car in London it's only an, a matter of time before you get one of these come through your door penalty charge notice for I can't even remember I can't even remember this I can't figure out where this is it wasn't speeding, by the way, because I wouldn't use that as an illustration. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, my wife's pregnant. Get me to the hospital. Um, I got I, I, apparently I ended up stopping in a box junction without. I don't remember doing it. Um, so the, this thing is um, is written on behalf of someone who is in a position of authority. They are allowed to tell me you have to pay 
65 quid in order to pay this fine. I don't have a choice in the matter. In fact, I could decide not to. It just gets worse and worse the, the longer you decide not to. This, this is an example of authority. authority. Someone is telling me, you have to do this, and I'm in a position to be able to tell you that you should do that. And that's what we mean when, the, when we talk about the authority of Scripture. We mean the idea that the Bible has the right to tell us what we should believe and what we should do. So maybe another visual way of putting it is um, to, we could talk about the Bible being under us. So you put it kind of here. I, I'm over the Bible, really. Like I'll read it. It's nice. It gives me some wisdom for life, but I don't agree with all of it. That's the idea of us being an authority over God's word. Was what we're talking about is more like this. The idea, actually, God's word is in authority over me and basically gets to call the shots. If, like Jesus basically assumed, if God's word says something, lump it, we need to do it. And obviously that scripture rightly interpreted, rightly applied. So we'll move on to that because some of you might be immediately thinking, well, we, we, we eat shellfish, whereas the Old Testament says we shouldn't. We'll cover that. But the basic rule is if the Bible tells us to do something and we're interpreting it correctly, we should do it. The Bible asks us to believe something is true, then we should believe it. That's what the authority of scripture means. And authority gets a bad reputation. So probably mainly because people think of the idea of um, authoritarian people or so on. But actually we are all, everyone in the world is under authority in some way or another, whether they realize it or not, or whether they say it or not. So just a few statements, you might be able to guess who is in authority here. So one statement, I want you to finish this project by July. Who could that be spoken of by? A boss. Your boss is an authority over you. I want you to finish this project by July. Stand down, soldier. Sergeant. Sergeant. Or someone in the army who is in a higher ranking position than you. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. Could be. It could be a feminist. That could be one, one example. But it's the, the person who is speaking themselves. They're saying, I am the ultimate authority. I am the captain of my soul. I'm the can't remember the exact poem it's um invictus the invictus poems like, i'm the master of my fate i am the captain of my soul i am my ultimate authority tidy your room or you won't get any dinner <laughs> parents <laughs> that's yeah dad <laughs> no 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 we we had to tidy our room regardless of dinner or not and we had to eat our dinner on time as well i remember that um i hereby sentence you to five years in prison that's the judge presenting that smoking is harmful to your health and can lead to lung cancer might be a doctor so again, notice all of these aren't this, like that last one particularly, that wasn't an order, but that was someone in a position of authority saying, I am in a position to tell you what you should believe about something. So it can either be saying you have to do this or you have to believe this. And all, all Christians are under God's authority. I think no Christian in the world would disagree with that. If they disagree with it, they're not a Christian. They don't fit the definition of a Christian. Um, and we've seen one of the major ways that God exercises his authority is through the scriptures. So it's not like you've got God there exercising his authority and then the Bible there exercising authority independently. When we talk about the Bible being authoritative, we mean that God exercises his authority through the Bible. In a, like it's, it's, a, it's not a great parallel, but it's kind of like the way that the government exercised their authority through that penalty charge notice. The, the, the parallel's not exact because I don't delight in the penalty charge notice in the way that I should delight in Scripture. <laughs> But that's kind of what's going on. We're not talking about a different authority to God. We're talking about God working his authority through the scriptures. And that's one of the major ways in which um, God does that, which means that the Bible rightly understood can and should make demands of the way that we live and the way that we think. 
And that comes from the way that Jesus thinks about Scripture. We think if Jesus believed that about Scripture, what does that mean for us? It means the Bible is authoritative, and that changes the way we approach everything in life. Changes the way we approach sexual ethics. Changes the way we approach money. The way we approach making decisions in general. If this is the way that God is exercising authority over our lives, then if this tells us here is a particular way you should think about sexual ethics or money or decisions, that has to be the way that we decide. Rather than saying, what do I feel like? Feeling is not a very reliable indicator of what we should do if it doesn't line up with scripture. And I think that's, that's the way we as Christians should operate. So just a challenge for us and for me is, does, who acts as our authority in our life, practically? Is it God through the scriptures? Or is it perhaps our, ourselves? I think that's probably the risk in the West, is that our own selves act as our authority. And if we feel like it, we do it. If we don't feel like it, we don't do it. So just a bit of a, a challenge for us there. So that's first thing, scripture is authoritative. The second thing would be, and this is where this inflatable thing comes in handy scripture is inspired now you will understand why i have i i've given my trumpet back to my dad because he probably i think he probably doesn't even play it does he at home no but he's taken it back for some reason um so i don't have a real trumpet but i've got a fake saxophone um the reason scripture is inspired what we are talking about there is the fact that god has breathed out scripture inspired literally means inspirited it means putting breath or spirit into something so we're talking about how the idea that the, of the words of the Bible relates to God's words themselves. Um, so here, I'd like if you've got your Bibles, you could turn to Second Timothy three, verses fifteen to seventeen. Just give you a couple of seconds to turn there. So this is Paul the Apostle writing towards the end of his life, kind of telling his young protege Timothy what he should be doing as a as a church leader. And um, there's a lot of emphasis on teaching correct doctrine. So 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 to 17. And Paul says this. He says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the key line we're bless you. The key line we're looking at there is all scripture is breathed out by God. You could say all scripture is inspired. What that literally means is all 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 scripture is the word for spirit and breath is actually the same in Greek, which is the language in which this would have been written originally. It's the idea actually when scripture is written, it's like God's breathing it out. You you need breath in order to be able to speak. And so when we talk about scripture being breathed out by God, we mean that. God is actually inspiring. God is actually putting his own words in the scriptures. And the reason I've got this saxophone is to just a, a visual illustration that I think is quite helpful. Because if you read the Bible, you think, well, it's not like the, the whole Bible looks like it's written by one single author. There's loads of different styles. There's different personalities that come through. I suppose it's a little bit like a, a wind instrument. So the person who plays the wind instrument is the one who is ultimately deciding what notes they're playing. But the way that that music sounds depend on what in, depends on what wind instrument you're playing. If you play a saxophone, that will sound different to if you're playing a trumpet, which will sound different to if you're playing a clarinet. But the person who is actually making those notes is still the musician themselves. And remember, any illustrations when we're talking about the way God works are always going to fall down somewhere. But I think that's just a helpful way of thinking through how do the words of the Bible relate to God's word in some mysterious way, which I don't understand, I don't think anyone does, the Bible is, uh, doesn't remove the fact that there are human authors, 
But even though there are human authors, the very words that we have in Scripture are the words that God himself has chosen. I don't know how that works. It's not like the author's sitting there with his hand being forced to write particular things. But God is somehow inspiring the very words in Scripture, which I think is important because it's, it's, when we talk about Scripture being inspired, we're not talking about the idea that God inspires people and then they go away and write what they've heard in their own words. God does inspire people, but it's more than that. The very words of Scripture here are said to be breathed out by God. When it says all Scripture is breathed out by God, what it's talking about there is it's not saying the whole of Scripture. It means every passage of Scripture. It's, it's in the singular. It's not the Scriptures. It's every passage of Scripture is breathed out by God. So the amazing thing there is when you read this book, and yes, we're reading a translation, but it still works through translations. We are reading the words of God. When, if you want to hear from God, you can open this book and you can hear God speaking through that very book, um, which I think is amazing. And obviously, it's, it, we read a translation of the original languages, but still, the early church read a translation of the Old Testament and they still believe God spoke to them through it. So you don't have to be able to read Greek and Hebrew in order to hear God speaking through the Bible. It's amazing. When the Bible speaks, God speaks, which is kind of the way Jesus approached it. It's written. You shall, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. If the scripture said it for Jesus, that was enough. That means God said it. Um, so in some mysterious way, and don't ask me to explain how that works outside of offering a slightly weak analogy, God uses the human authors to write the actual words that he wants to convey. And that doesn't stop the human authors having their own personality. So Paul is not the same as Peter. Peter's not the same as James. James is not the same as Moses. But they're all writing the words that God himself is inspiring. So I think it's really cool. And cool is such an understatement. It's amazing. <laughs> Third thing. So we've got two more to go. Scripture is sufficient. And here's where I've got my toolkit. I like DIY. Um, scripture is sufficient. When you say something is sufficient, it means it's enough to do the task that you need it to. So if I want to put a nail into a wall, this is sufficient. It might not be sufficient for unblocking the sink. In fact, if I tried to unblock the sink with this, I'd probably end up in trouble. But it's sufficient for the task that I need it to do. And so when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, we're talking about the fact that the Bible is enough. But we're not saying that the Bible is all of the information you will ever need for anything. Because that's not what the Bible is. So if you're looking, for example, the Bible doesn't really say anything about microbiology. I mean, outside of by implication, it doesn't talk about that. It doesn't really talk about, I don't know, pure maths or it doesn't. It, there are many things the Bible doesn't actually touch on. But the Bible is sufficient. It's enough for what it's designed for. And if we go back to that scripture in 2 Timothy 3 verses 15 to 17 you'll notice what it says it says the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus and then it says all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching for reproof for correction for encouragement for training in righteousness in other words the scriptures are sufficient they are all they are what we need in order to come to know God through salvation so the truth that the scriptures reveal is sufficient to bring us to salvation through the work of the spirit which we'll talk about in a second and it's sufficient to help us to know how to live godly lives it's not necessarily sufficient for doing a PhD in microbiology you won't be able to get the answers you need for for that particular thing but you will be able to get the answers you need for how do I live a life that is pleasing to God how do I go about making good 
good decisions in life, this book is sufficient to make those. Now, I just need to explain something slightly here because we also believe that God speaks today through prophecy. So how does that relate to the fact that this book is sufficient? Now, when I say it's sufficient for living a Christian life, what that means is when God speaks through prophecy, which he does, I believe he speaks today, that will not contradict what this book says. In fact, it's a good rule of thumb. If someone says, I've got a prophetic word for you, and they say something that completely contradicts the Bible, then you can, I mean, I would not worry about that particular prophetic word because that isn't actually coming from God in that case. It may well be that they've got themselves muddled up or it may, well, it may well be that it could be someone who's coming in trying to cause trouble or so on, but you don't, don't, have, don't think that that prophetic word is then binding on your life because if it doesn't line up with scripture and the Holy Spirit inspired scripture, then the Holy Spirit wouldn't have inspired someone to speak something that's contrary to scripture. So that's what I mean when it's sufficient. It doesn't mean that prophetic words are not really helpful or actually often essential for making a particular decision in life. So should I move to this particular part of the world and plant a church or should I move to this particular part of the world and plant a church? If you're God's prompting you to make that decision, in a, sometimes it might be up to you, but to make that decision, you can't just look at the Bible and say, what does the Bible tell me to do? North Korea or Japan? But God can confirm through a prophetic word what that is. But that prophetic word will always line up with scripture if it's from God. So that's what we mean by sufficiency. We don't mean sufficient for everything, but we mean sufficient for what it's designed for. And actually, we need the Holy Spirit to understand Scripture. So it's not like this book in and of itself without any help of the Holy Spirit is enough because we wouldn't get this book if we didn't have the help of the Holy Spirit. We might be able to understand what it's saying. There are non-Christian Bible scholars around the world, but it doesn't change their lives. It doesn't impact the way that they actually live their lives. It's just a history book as far as they're concerned so that's what we mean by scripture being sufficient and then finally and then we'll do a bit of a bit of q a um scripture is true and here the visual aid i've got for this is if i can find it no i can't find it oh well i'll tell you what it is it's a compass anyone, anyone use a compass before you get points north basically not a compass where you draw circles but a compass that for orienteering points north so you know ah that is true north it's telling me where to go and it's accurate. A compass will always point north unless you put a magnet by it, but ignore the magnet thing for a minute. It points true north. Scripture is true. What, this is probably the one that most people would object to in practice, but actually, if we are assuming that what Jesus says of the Bible is what we should believe, then we should assume that the Bible is true because Jesus believed that. He said the Bible cannot be broken. The Scriptures cannot be broken. And so what that means is, Correctly interpreted, the, what the Bible says is true, or what the Bible intends to say is true. So I've, I've said intends to say there, rather than just says, corrected myself, because sometimes the Bible says stuff that isn't true. If you take it in isolation, Psalm 14 says, there is no God. If you read it in context, you realise it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> We're doing a series on Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is not meant to be taken literally if, if I told Bex that her nose is like the tower of whatever it is, Siloam or, or something, she would probably not be happy with that. But what it probably means is your nose is majestic. It looks amazing, that kind of thing. So it's not literally true. But what it intends to say, what it intends to mean by that is true. Does that make sense? So that's why interpreting is helpful. So if one of the Psalms says, 
something like the su- the sun comes out of its chamber like a bridegroom leaping for joy. You think that is a weird picture of the sun. That is not literally what happens, but it's conveying something about the joy of creation in its creator. Every morning the sun comes up without like like a joyful bridegroom out of his chamber. So what the Bible intends to mean or what the Bible intends to say is always true. And that's the assumption we should come to with. And yes, there are sometimes problems to deal with. There are sometimes texts where you think that looks like that's intention with this. And we have to deal with that. But we should approach it with an assumption that it's true rather than an assumption that it's guilty until proven innocent. If you approach the Bible with the assumption of guilty until proven innocent, you will find mistakes that are not even there. You won't find mistakes there, but you will find, you'll find mistakes where no one has ever thought there was a mistake because you're approaching it from a sceptical point of view. You assume the worst of it. We should assume the best of the Bible, and actually you'll find that a lot of the problems that you thought were in Scripture aren't there because if you assume it, that it's true, you realise, actually, no, that's not a contradiction at all. That's actually, that works really well together. Whereas if you assume that there are many, many mistakes in the Bible, you're going to find them everywhere. You're going to make them up by reading them into the actual text itself. And that's not to say there aren't difficulties. Um, we, there might be some questions that you have or you can ask at another point or so on, but um, that's the assumption that I think we should bring to the Scriptures. That all make sense? Yeah, so four key aspects there. So Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is inspired. In, in other words, the very words of Scripture are the words of God. Scripture is sufficient for salvation and for living a godly life. And Scripture is true. Um, so let's let's take a few minutes to do a bit of so if you've got any questions that have been coming up here so we'll go for maybe 10 minutes of questions then we'll have a quick break and then we'll come back after that okay any questions you have used a yep. lot of uh, the word assume yes i think a lot of non-christians struggle with yep. faith is that you assume a lot of things mm. i think once you are in a relationship with jesus that assumption becomes reasonable yes but yep. when you are not, it is very hard. It just falls into the non-believers, yep. like common criticism against yep. Christianity, which is you just assume things. It is a leap of faith. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like how do you, especially when you come across Muslim colleagues yep. who believe the Quran is true, <coughs> the same way we believe the Bible is true, and the Quran and Bible obviously contradict each other. Yep. How do we approach faith conversations like that? Okay. Yeah. So when I'm saying that we should assume that the Bible's true. Um, you're right. I, I don't think that's something that you could request of a non-Christian. But I would just assume it's true, and then you'll believe it. Um, I don't assume the Bible's true just because I assume the Bible's true. I assume the Bible's true because I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore what he says about it goes. And I agree with you. Actually, I think it's the kind of assumption that can only really be made from the point of view of faith. And by faith, I don't mean blind trust. I mean from the point of view of someone who has encountered the risen Jesus and feels that he's Lord of their life. Um, I think a, a similar analogy would be actually the, the problem, of, problem of suffering and of pain. Um, I think there are various intellectual answers that can be given for why, why we got our suffering. But actually, emotionally, you can, I think you can only emotionally deal with the problem of suffering this side of coming to know Christ. Once you, when you don't know Christ, then there's no answer you can give that someone thinks, oh, that emotionally satisfies me. Whereas when you know Jesus... You think, actually, I don't understand everything, but I've come to know Christ and he is my comfort. He's my strength. And I think it's quite similar with scripture, actually. I wouldn't expect a non-Christian to to assume that the Bible is true before coming to know Jesus. But I think it's something that logically flows out of coming to know Jesus. So if I'm talking with a non-Christian, they might have questions about, oh, how does this part of the Bible work? And I'll probably answer their questions 
on like that individual basis. Um, but I assume that the Bible is true because Jesus assumed it was true. Um, and I think assumptions don't necessarily mean it's not true. And I think that's that's where um, I think where the accusations often come. Is people say, "Well, you're just making an assumption. That means that you can't prove it." Um, and I think you make assumptions because you feel there's enough evidence to make that assumption. It's not just a, a blind leap of faith. It's coming to a particular conclusion about something. And because you've come to that conclusion, you then assume that it's true. And I think that's the way that I would see assuming that scripture is true. But I agree, it's not, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's an assumption that you would require of a non-Christian to be like, oh, well, of course you would assume that. I think that's something we assume in light of the fact that that's the way Jesus thought about it. Does that make sense? Um, So I I don't think, this isn't particularly apologetics, if you see what I mean by that. I'm not trying to convince someone that therefore this is reasonable. I'm saying if we do believe Jesus rose from the dead, I think this logically follows. Yeah. Any any other questions? So yeah. There's a passage that says uh, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Yes. Can we have uh, sort of a confident assumption that even people being exposed to God's word without necessarily having a relationship mm. with Jesus can bring them to... Yeah, the absolutely. Scripture is, um, it is able to make you wise for salvation. I think what the scriptures teach is powerful. So talking about our, the assumptions we make about scripture isn't a judgment on what scripture itself is. And I think scripture is powerful. The truth that is in scripture, the, the gospel is God's power for, for salvation. Um, that doesn't mean that non-Christians assume the gospel is true. In fact, they assume that it's not. So the, the thing I'm saying about assumptions doesn't have anything to do with what scripture actually in and of itself is. Scripture is powerful. Scripture is able to save people. But the fact that we assume that um, has got nothing to do with whether or not it's actually that is actually the case. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, maybe another couple of questions. Yeah. So the Bible describes as God-inspired. Yes. How would you describe books written by Christians, other books written by Christians, other than the Bible? Um, Not God's word would be generally the way. So inspired, so the thing is, um, inspired in a sense, it it depends, what do you mean by inspired? I think there there are many books that are inspired in the sense that that person clearly had revelation of some kind, often through reading the Bible or so on. But that's not the same as saying that book is God breathed. So, um, in fact, I mean, there are, there are many books, many Christian books, many even non-Christian books that are very true and truthful about what they're talking about. But that's not the same as saying that particular book is God's word. God may agree with it, but it doesn't mean that he has actually inspired that specific book. So I think the scriptures are the only collection of writings that I would say that God has breathed out in that particular way, that God himself has inspired the very words. But that doesn't mean that there aren't many other writings that are true and that God would agree with what they contain. It just means they're not writings that we say, that's authoritative over our life, that's sufficient for salvation. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. yeah? Okay, one more, Sarah. What about the Apocrypha? Oh, the Apocrypha. Um, the Apocrypha is... So for those of you who don't know, the Apocrypha is a collection of books that in the Catholic Bible, actually, they, they still have it. It's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, I'd say go ahead, go, go away and read some of the books of the Apocrypha if you're interested. They're not like... They're not going to turn you all weird. Um, a lot of them are books that actually are probably historically accurate about what they talk about. Some of them are, in fact, there's Psalm 151 is contained in the Apocrypha, and it's 
I mean, it's relatively obvious, relatively obvious that David didn't write it because it's basically him just bragging about how great he is. So as you read the Psalms and you think David tended to brag about God rather than himself. Um, so there's, it's basically a collection of writings probably written from about the second century BC to maybe up until the first century AD. Um, they, they were only considered by the Catholic Church as part of scripture from the Reformation onwards, as far as I know. So it's, there's no evidence of the earliest church actually using those writings. Um, so, yeah, I mean, some of them are a great read, but we, we wouldn't have them in our, in our Bibles because the earliest church and the New Testament church didn't. The New Testament never quotes the Apocrypha. Um, with, well, with one exception, Jude quotes one Enoch, but it's not quoting it as scripture. It's not, it's not saying as the scriptures say. But they never really quote or they allude to it sometimes, but they never do that in the same way as they do the Old Testament scriptures. Um, so the Apocrypha is this nice collection of books that um, are probably in the main true. Some of them are a little bit weird. Um, there's a dragon in one of them, but um, they're, not, they're not something we take as binding over our lives. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, let's, let's have a break for a few minutes. Um, stretch our legs. You can grab another juice and we'll gather back together at three. Great, so a couple more um, topics to go on this, um, and then you are free to enjoy the rest of your, uh, rest of your Sunday. Um, you guys are doing some good thinking, good questions, so keep, keep them coming, although don't make them too difficult, so I don't embarrass myself and eventually end up on YouTube looking embarrassed. Um, but we're, we're going to look now at the idea of how does the Bible work? So believing that the Bible is God's word and that it has authority doesn't get you the whole way. There's good assumptions to have, good assumptions to make um, that, that it's true. But then we've got the question of how we're meant to approach reading the Bible. And I'm talking large scale reading the Bible, not just figuring out what a passage means. So this is where the big H word comes in that some of you may be familiar with. Anyone heard of hermeneutics before? Okay. Anyone heard of exegesis before? Okay. They are different things. And I will explain what they are. And if you don't want to know those words don't worry but just replace them with something else Um, hermeneutics is how do we approach the bible as a whole or maybe another question is what is the bible as a book so like are you meant to read it as if it were a fairy tale are you meant to which obviously we don't because we because of what we just covered or are you meant to read it in the way that you would read a historical novel whereas exegesis is the actual activity of figuring out what a text means So to show you a bit of the the difference between the two, you could understand the meaning of a particular passage in Leviticus, for example, that says you shall not eat pork. You can decide what the text means is you should not eat pork. That doesn't tell you how that particular passage fits within the whole of the Bible and it doesn't tell you how exactly that, how, how should you apply that passage to your life? That's the task of what's called hermeneutics, which is the theory of how you go about interpreting the whole of the Bible, which hopefully will make a bit bit more sense um we're going to talk a little bit more about nitty-gritty ideas for how to go about reading the bible but this is kind of large scale the bible as a whole how are we meant to um look at it so let's uh, here are a few different ways that people have suggested we could interpret the bible as a whole so maybe just thinking about that food law idea don't you shall not eat pork let's think about how each one of these might impact the way that you read that specific verse so one of them would be to see the Bible as a human witness of religious experience. So I say, okay, the Bible basically is a collection of books that is about the human witness of their own religious experience. Now, at that point, you could read that particular food law and say, 
Well, yeah, that says you shall not eat pork. What that is, is that particular person who is writing about their own personal religious experience. It's not binding on me in any way. It doesn't apply to me. Um, and so that would skew the way that you read that and the way that you apply it. Another example would be the idea that the Bible is basically timeless truth. That's what it is. It's timeless abstract truth, which we believe the Bible's true. But if we say it's timeless truth, you're left with a bit of a problem because with that food law, you've got you shall not eat pork. And then another part of the Bible where it says, and Jesus declared all foods clean. You think, OK, if this is all timeless truth, how are we to make sense of the fact that in one place it tells me I can't eat pork and in another place it tells me that any food is allowed? So timeless truth doesn't really work. Another example of how you could make a theory of how you're supposed to um, approach the Bible is the idea of, anyone heard of this, trajectory hermeneutics? Anyone come across that idea before? You have. <laughs> okay, Steph has. This, this is the idea that basically the Bible is part of a journey. And little by little, it reveals more and more of what God's ideal is. And so it starts off in the beginning. In fact, the, the food law is not the best illustration for this. But let's, so maybe let's use the idea of Kind of sexuality and, and, and so on. So it starts off, and in the Old Testament, you've got, these, you've got these really severe laws with severe penalties for stuff like sex outside of marriage. And so if, if, you, if, if someone has sex outside of marriage, you're meant to stone them, and that, that, is, that is kind of far from God's ideal. And as you go through Scripture, you eventually have Jesus who comes along, and the early church, and you think, well, people aren't being stoned anymore for... Um, sleeping with someone outside of marriage and so there's been a development that's gone on and if we follow the trajectory eventually we will end up at a point where anyone's allowed to do whatever they want sexually and that is God's ideal that's kind of a caricature of what trajectory hermeneutics is which is the idea that little by little the bible gets better and better on certain things but we haven't quite reached God's ideal by the time we get to the new testament the problem with that is who tells us where the trajectory ends you just keep going until you've reached the point that you're comfortable with and I don't think that's the way that the Bible works. It's definitely not the way that Jesus saw it working. When Jesus referred to the Old Testament and gave teachings on, on various things, he didn't see it as this is a trajectory that's getting better and better and better. And eventually it's now reached its climax in liberal Western society. So Jesus isn't going around saying, guys, in 2000 years time, we'll have reached the ideal. Oddly, I think most any, any culture that holds the idea of trajectory hermeneutics is kind of seeing themselves as the ultimate fulfillment of that. Um, so that, that's, that would be a problem with that. I think the best way of approaching the Bible is to see the Bible as, the, as primarily an authoritative narrative. Primarily. There's a lot, I'll unpack that a little bit. What I mean by that is the scriptures as a whole tell us the story of God's plan to bring about his purposes in creation. And so it's authoritative in the sense that it tells us the way that we should think about that particular massive story. And at that point, every writing within the Bible is either narrative that's telling that story, which a, a huge bulk of the Bible is it's narrative. It's telling God dealing with his people, God creating the world, the redemption that comes through Jesus. It's either narrative or it fits within that narrative. So you look at the sections of, on the law and you realize that fits within the narrative for a particular purpose at a particular time. Look at the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, and you think that works because it fits within the story of Scripture at one point. You look at the idea of the wisdom literature, so stuff like Song of Songs, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, probably the parts of the Bible that would approach the idea of timeless truth the most, but actually they fit within that large overarching story of Scripture. And I think this is the most helpful way of approaching the Bible as a whole, 
because it also helps us figure out why is it that I don't that that the idea that we shouldn't eat pork doesn't actually apply nowadays to us as a church made up mainly of non-Jewish people. It helps explain that because the question at that point is which part of the story am I living in? And therefore, which, what is the intention of that particular law in that particular part of the narrative? Does that make sense? Kind of? Okay, I'll unpack that a little bit more. We could think of the story that the Bible tells, best, um, well, best model, helpful model I've heard is the idea of a, a five-act model. Or maybe if you, you're more into films, a five-chapter DVD. Well, the problem is that illustration is not going to work for much longer because DVDs are on the way out. But anyway, five chapters within a book, if any of us still read books. Um, <laughs> chapter one being creation. So we've got the story of God creating the world, setting up his purposes for creation. Chapter two then ends up being the fall. Everything basically goes pear-shaped as a result of humanity's failure to live up to what they should have been in God's original creation. You then get chapter 3, which is kind of the bulk of the Old Testament, which is Israel. And that's where God chooses a particular man and his descendants in order to be his chosen people and the vehicle through whom he's going to bless all of the nations. Can you see that there's a story that's going on for this whole, all of these acts? There's an end goal that's in mind. You then reach the end of the Old Testament and you get the next chunk of the story, which we call Act 4, Jesus. Where Jesus, the true descendant of this man called Abraham, comes along and fulfills the purposes for which God had actually called his people in the first place, and also takes the, um, takes the curse of the law that had come upon them because they failed to live out that purpose. And Jesus restores God's purposes for creation, sets the story back on track the way it should have been, comes as the, basically the climax of the story, and then creates a new people originally out of Israel, but little by little incorporating people from all nations, and that leads into Act 5, which would be Act 5, the church, where God's new, renewed people, who are increasingly from all nations, go to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the fact that the story that God had started is now heading towards the, traject- the, um, the end goal that it should have had in the first place, which is that the ends of the earth would be filled with the glory of God. And so that's kind of a way of breaking down the story, which means... We need to think through where are we in that story when we're reading the Bible? Because we're not in Act 1 anymore. We're not in Act 3. We are not in the Israel part of the story. And most of us here would probably be non-Jewish, which means in terms ethnically we haven't got any, any ethnic roots in that particular part of the story. We are in Act 5, the church. We are the other side of the cross and the resurrection, which means that that changes the way that we read the scriptures and we approach the scriptures because if you approach them as if you're living in act three you are going to assume that every single commandment in the mosaic law is something that you have to still obey such as sacrifices or such as not eating pork and so on whereas if you realize you're in act five you think okay has the story developed at all since act three bearing in mind that i'm now at this place in the story make sense yeah, yeah? so i think that's a helpful way overall of approaching it, which means, and actually I'll I'll mention this in a second, but it it means that we assume that if the New Testament asks us to do something, then we should do it, because that's the part of the story that we're in. Whereas parts of the Old Testament, we might look at and think, actually, because of what Jesus has done, and it's very clear that he's changed the way that we approach that, that's not something that applies in the same way to us anymore. And that takes some thinking through and some working out, but that broadly would be the way that we'd approach... um, reading the bible so a few ways that that then works out in our lives so if that is what the bible is 
It's a gigantic story and everything fits within that story somehow. How does that work in our, in our lives? In the way, when we read it, how does the Bible work on us? And so here are a few ways. One of them would be what I've called worldview forming. So a bit of an illustration. These glasses are what I see the world through. Everything's gone very blurry suddenly. So if I'm not looking through particular lenses, I see the world in a particular way. And so if I didn't have these glasses, didn't know about glasses, I'd assume that the world is just a blurry place. In fact, I wouldn't know the concept of blurry. I would assume that when someone talked about seeing stuff in a blurry way, I'd assume it meant more blurry than this. Whereas once I put these on, I see the world in a particular way. For those of you who wear glasses and have worn them for a while, you don't notice they're there unless you actually think about it. That's a little bit like what a worldview is. It's particular... It's a particular way that you see the world, the universe, the way people should act and so on, that you don't even think about. It's not like you're sitting there reasoning through and thinking, why should I believe that this person shouldn't do X, Y, and Z? You just assume it. You're not even justifying it. You don't need to justify it in your mind because that's the way you see the world. And I think one of the main ways that the Bible works is that it forms our worldview. In other words, it, it gives us the right lenses to see the world. And how that that, I think that's one of the reasons why um, much of the Bible isn't that we can't just turn the Bible into creeds. So we do, do you know what a creed is? It's kind of a f- confession of we believe in this, we believe in that. And they're great. They're a great way of making sure that actually we line up with orthodox historic Christian doctrine, that we understand the Bible correctly. But the Bible isn't a creed. And one of the reasons it isn't a creed, I think is because part of what it does is it forms the way that we think. And very often that happens through just reading over and over again. You read through the Bible, you read through it again, and you read through it again. You spend your life reading more and more scripture. And before you know it, you suddenly realize, wait a minute, the lenses I'm seeing the world through look very different to the way that I saw them a few years ago. And part of that is because through his Holy Spirit, God has been forming your worldview, the way you think about the world, which is a reason, if, if we need any, why it's worth reading the Bible regularly. Because you'll suddenly notice, wait a minute, I think about things differently. And the world is constantly trying to, fo- to give us a different worldview. So we mustn't be naive. The posters that you see all over the place, messages that are getting, getting sent through on TV, are constantly trying to form the way that we see the world. They're trying to give us alternative lenses to look through. And so we need to make sure we're looking at the world through the right lenses. And that those lenses develop over a over years and years and years of so it's not to say that you don't have those lenses like after just a few weeks of being a christian in in some way but actually they they grow and develop and become more and more ingrained in your in your life as you read scripture over time so that's one way um another way and and this is kind of linked with it another way which which the bible works in our lives is through what i've called improvisation now what i don't mean by that is just doing whatever you feel like that's not how improvisation actually works in music so we've got a few musicians i think here improvisation works by mainly you you have to play something within a particular scale of notes so if you want to improvise as a musician you can't just say right i'm just going to go for it it will sound horrible what you tend to do is you spend years and years and years practicing scales and other ones over and over again morning evening and you get them so ingrained in your mind that you're able to just improvise suddenly you find yourself playing things that you think wow this all fits this sounds right it's because that the way you're improvising is consistent with all of the musical scales that you've been doing 
And like I said, the Bible doesn't speak to every area of life. And so how do you make a decision when the Bible's silent on a particular issue? Is it right for me to do this? Dating, for example, is a, is a classic example. The Bible doesn't really give us concrete um, advice for dating because the idea of dating wasn't really around in the Bible in the way it worked. So how do we figure out what we should believe about dating, how we go about it, what good practice is? A lot of the time that's by improvising, which doesn't mean you do whatever the heck you want. It means you think, okay, I've had this, these scriptures shaping my worldview year after year after year. What is consistent with that particular story? What's consistent with the way the Bible thinks about these particular issues? And what you'll find is, I mean, have you, you, may, you may find that from, um, sometimes in, in your life anyway. If you've been a Christian for a while, you think, I just made that decision impulsively. It felt like it was right. And actually, with hindsight, that was the right decision. But I didn't need to think about it. And that's often how it will work. In fact, you often can identify a, a mature Christian kind of, you know, you just look, look, look at my, my parents or so on, you think actually they make decisions that are often the right decision and they don't necessarily need to think it through because they've got a life of soaking in the scriptures, having their minds renewed and transformed. And that's one of the other ways that it works. I've mentioned the idea of actually if you've got a command in the New Testament, assume that that is something that applies to us unless it's very clear that it's a contextual thing. So we're not meant to go and find Paul's books, for example. That's a command he gives to Titus or to Timothy. Please bring me my books back. We don't have to go off and find his books. Whereas when the New Testament says something like, love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul and strength, love your neighbour as yourself, that's not Jesus saying, oh, for you, you specific person over there, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Everyone else, don't worry about that. That's a, that's a command we should take as binding on us. So that's an assumption to make. And most importantly, and here's where we'll go into a bit of a group activity, the whole Bible points towards Jesus. It would be a real mistake to do a hot topic on the doctrine of Scripture if I didn't mention this. Because the whole Bible ultimately is supposed to point to Jesus. So Jesus says in Luke, Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, which is the first few books of the Bible, and all the prophets, rest of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them all the scripture, in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. Jesus realized the Bible was ultimately pointing to him. And um, John's gospel actually says, you search the scriptures, to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think you have life in them. He said, you don't realize they're pointing to me. As Christians, we're those who know that the Bible is pointing to Jesus ultimately. Um, and I'd like us to do a bit of a bit of a activity thinking thinking through that last point, which is to take an Old Testament story with which I'm sure you'll be quite familiar, um, which is the, the near sacrifice of Isaac, to read through it and to and one of the ways that the Old Testament points to Jesus is through what we call typology, which is in other words, it's patterns that you think that reminds me of someone else. And what I'd like us to do is um, Genesis 22, that's verses 1 to 19. So go ahead and and read that. And in your groups, think through in what way do you see that story pointing to Jesus? So both in the general, so you might think through that story as a whole because of what it's talking about. Here's how it can point to Jesus. Or you might want to go a little bit deeper than that as well and think, are there any details that you think, that seems like a weird detail to just put in there. That feels like that's pointing towards something bigger than just itself. Yep, so let's go for five, ten minutes and see what you come up with. Okay, let's, let's hear some, uh, what, what kind of things did you, um, did you pick up on? Kind of maybe large scale, first of all. So in terms of the story as a whole, did you notice 
any way in which that was a bit of a pattern or a shadow that um, that you see Jesus fulfilling? Any suggestions? Sacrifice of the only son. Yeah, it's a, it's a story about God requiring a sacrifice of the only son. Um, so there's clear there's a pattern that's going on there. Um, I think a, a lot of the way this, a lot of the time, the way typology or the idea of patterns works is that you read the Old Testament in light of the gospel and you notice things that you hadn't seen there before. So um, this, this isn't always something you're reading and you're thinking, ah, oh, that, that clearly, anyone who would have read this text would have thought that at some point there's going to be someone who is going to be crucified on behalf of all of the people. It's the kind of thing that in light of Jesus coming along, you think, my eyes have been opened to the fact that was always there in the text, but I'd never seen that in that way before. That's how the, the pattern thing often works. Great. Any, anything else um, that people noticed, whether general, detailed, they want to share? Isaac carries his own wood. Yeah, it's like Jesus carries his own cross to Golgotha to be crucified. Isaac carries his own wood. Yeah. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the great thing is the great thing about stories is you don't have to tell all the details. So you can make a particular point from your story just by not mentioning a particular thing. So we don't know from this story whether Isaac was aware. Or, I mean, he, was, he, he clearly wasn't aware that they were going to sacrifice him for most of it. But we don't know, did he put up a fight? Did he just lie there and let it happen? And I think the fact that the narrative is silent on that, I think is quite telling. I think the, the, so the, the impression you get is a little bit like Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter, so he was silent. That's the impression you get. Whether or not in the actual way it worked out, he was wriggling and trying to get out of his... The, the narrative doesn't tell us, and I think that's perhaps intentional. It's trying to tell us the story. It's not telling a distorted story, but it's telling us the story to make a particular point. Um, yeah, excellent. Any, anything else that people noticed? <coughs> Yeah, there's the whole like right, from, and and that's that's interesting, isn't it? What what Abraham says there, God Himself will provide the ram, or God Himself will provide the lamb. You think, as far as he's concerned, he's going to offer his son, but in that moment, he's able to say, God Himself will provide the lamb. God Himself will provide the ram. You think there's something even in the language that Abraham uses that suggests trust that God is going to provide a way out. Um, yeah, anything else? Anyway, in fact. Picking up on that one, any, typology sometimes works by reversing the situation. Did anyone notice a reversal that happens in this story versus Jesus's story? I guess yep. uh, there wasn't a replacement for Jesus. Yes, yeah, there wasn't a replacement for Jesus. So here you've got the only son carrying his wood towards the, cro- the cross. There was no replacement for that son because he is the ultimate fulfillment of God will provide the lamb. Um, and often it's the, the way the Bible works is through reversing. So you get Old Testament events and you think actually the way that that works in Jesus is through it being reversed the other way around. There is, there's a substitute for Isaac. There is no substitute for Jesus because he is the substitute, um, which is amazing. I mean, the emphasis on the woods interesting. Did anyone notice how... You might say how unnecessary the repetition of the idea of wood was in that passage. So in verse 9, it says, When they came to the place which, um, which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the altar and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. <laughs> and you think, 
why mention on top of the wood? Because if he's put the wood on the altar, you, you, if you knew about sacrifices, which obviously the ancient Israelites who were reading this stuff, first of all, would have known, you put the sacrifice on top of the wood, but you just have to read that he's put the wood on top. And I think you don't, you, you've got to be careful not to read too much into stuff. But I think perhaps, I've, I think in the, the West, generally, our problem is probably to not read too much into stuff rather than to read too much in. And I think the fact that it repeats wood so many times for me is almost I'm wondering whether there's a, a shadowing of the, the cross the wood's significant it's not just the altar there's something about the wood here that's really important yeah and anything else that uh, people notice yeah It's not Jesus going off and doing his own thing. This is the Father's will. It's the Father's will to crush him. And you've got that, that what's called the cry of dereliction, dereliction on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, I'm, I, I, I don't know, perhaps yes, perhaps not. In that moment, Jesus is abandoned in one sense by God. But actually, you read to the end of Psalm 22, which he's, which he's quoting, and you realize by the end of the psalm, the writer is saying, you have not forsaken your servant. You have not given up on him. I think the thing is, when you take the cross as a whole, you realise, yes, even, if in, even though in that moment Jesus is abandoned, as a whole he is not abandoned because he's, re- he's vindicated and redeemed and raised from the dead the other side. And I think, yeah, there's, there's something there. The last few verses are really interesting as well, actually. I mean, it's, not, it's perhaps not so much typology here as just as generally. You've got, you, actually, I mean, I suppose there is a bit of typology. God says to Abraham, because you have done this, and you did not withhold your only son, I will surely bless you. And your, your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy, um, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And you think, because Abraham did this, God confirmed his covenant with him. Because Jesus went to the cross, the nations are being blessed. And there's so many parallels. It's amazing. That's, and that, that's obviously a passage which is full of like, symbolism, which is why I chose it. I didn't want to choose a really obscure one. Um, but there are so many other stories in the Old Testament, so many narratives that you think that's pointing to something bigger. That, that reminds me of something else. I think whenever you're reading the Bible and you're thinking that reminds me of something else, always dig in and have a bit of a look because very often, whether directly or indirectly, it's often pointing to Jesus. Um, one final thing before we move on to the last kind of practical tips, um, be on the lookout for things that remind you of the Exodus in the Old Testament. Any, any patterns that you think, that sounds a little bit like the story of the Exodus. So stories about people going to a foreign land and then, being, and then being taken back out again. Because anything that points to the story of the Exodus, at least indirectly, is pointing to the biggest Exodus of them all that happens in, in Jesus. So be on the lookout for Exodus stories. That's a good, good thing to be looking for. Um, okay, let's, let's finish by a few minutes of just some kind of thinking quite practical, practical tips in terms of reading the Bible. And then we'll do a bit of, bit of Q&A to end. Um, so just, I'm just going to list off a few, a few different things that I think are really helpful in terms of how to approach reading the Bible. Um, we're not going to be talking necessarily about how do you interpret a specific verse and how do you look up stuff in Greek dictionaries and so on. Just generally good advice for, for reading the Bible. Um, one thing I'd start with this is read, read or listen 
Perhaps you, perhaps you can't read. Perhaps you're, you're not able to read, but actually you could listen. You can get audio Bibles. So read or listen regularly. Um, I think that is regularity forms um, is, is a good habit. For if you're learning, a, if you're practicing a sport or if you're learning a musical instrument or even just meals. Like with a meal, you, it's not a good idea to just binge for one week and go for a whole week without eating anything and then binge again at the beginning of the week. So our life kind of just works as regular doing the same thing over and over again. That's part of how being a human works. And I think reading the Bible regularly is so important because if you read it regularly, it will form your thinking much more effectively than if you just binge a load in one go, do nothing for a week, binge another load in one go. Um, so I think that's, really, that's a really helpful thing to go for. Um, I think reading in community is really helpful. We're, we're not isolated islands. We are part of a community. Yes, we are individuals. God loves every single one of us and God loves us as individuals, but he has made us part of a community as well. And so reading the Bible in your gospel communities, reading the Bible in your running partners together, um, even if you're not necessarily doing in-depth Bible study, that's fine. Just reading the Bible together and then maybe at the end being like, I really love how that spoke to me. I love how this um, worked. For those of you who are married, reading the Bible together in your marriage regularly is really, really helpful um just reading is in households as well with your flatmates so reading the bible in community i think is really helpful um obviously on sundays as well that's one of the reasons why we make such a big deal of preaching partly is to explain the bible and apply it to our lives but also part one of the most important parts of preaching if not the most important is the reading of scripture itself and explaining it and applying it is really helpful but it's the scriptures themselves that are powerful and that are the most transformative in our lives Read large, large chunks of scripture and read small chunks of scripture. So don't feel like there's necess- don't feel like you have to say, okay, I'm going to limit myself to five verses a day because that's what you have to do. It may well be that there's a particular book of the Bible you're reading and you're thinking this is so detailed and rich that I can only really do five verses a day to really fully appreciate it. If you're reading through First and Second Samuel, which is a massive story, and you're only doing five verses a day, you will struggle to get any kind of continuity. You might sometimes just want to sit down for two or three hours and just read through a whole book. I think that's a really helpful way of doing it. But sometimes you might just want to sit down and read through a few verses and spend time thinking about that. Which brings me on to my next point, which is meditate on the Bible. Meditate is kind of this weird word, particularly in our culture. It might make us think about Eastern religions of people sitting there going, hmm. Meditate just means to mull stuff over in your mind over and over and over again. I think don't read read the bible and think about it throughout the day i know there was a practice i think you got into step a few years ago of writing a verse down for the day didn't you and then you kind of from time to time would just look at it throughout the day that that could be a helpful aid for that but just make sure that it's not just something you kind of just do in the morning and then go off but actually that we're mulling over scripture thinking about it because that's how that's how our thinking gets shaped and um, this is not us kind of doing god's work for him god uses these things to actually change the way that we think and change the way we live um another so perhaps a little bit more nitty-gritty practically how to actually engage with um the task of reading the bible be aware of the genre or the type of writing that you're reading so a psalm is different to a narrative which is different to wisdom literature and um here's where stuff like study bibles will be quite helpful so the um, we've got the ESV study Bible at home. We've got an NIV study Bible. They're really good resources because it's basically you've got the text of the Bible and then in the footnotes, you've got a few, few things that just help explain certain things. 
And then at the beginning of every book, they've often got a bit of an introduction to that specific book. And so you don't, you don't have to spend masses and masses of money on really detailed commentaries in order to get good tools to understand the Bible. So I think investing in a study Bible is actually a really helpful tool to do. But that helps you to be aware of what kind of writing you're reading and to think through how should I go about reading this? Um, because obviously we don't, th- we don't think about a poem in the same way as we think about a news article. Being aware of what you're reading, if something starts with once upon a time, you're probably not going to read it thinking, oh, this is clearly telling me what happened last year near where I live. Because usually it happens far, far away and in a land that you've never heard of and in a time that you're not even aware of. It's not meant to be taken as a true story. So you read Jesus' parables. If you're assuming that they actually happen, we're kind of partly missing the point. They're meant to communicate something through a story that probably didn't happen, at least not the that Jesus wasn't referring to a true story that had happened. Um, So be aware of that, and study Bibles are really helpful for that. If you don't want to go out and buy loads of commentaries, or if you're just thinking that would be just, I don't know where to start on that front, study Bibles are a really helpful thing to have. Um, Here's an interesting one. Be aware of how technology shapes the way that you read. So what do you tend to do on your phone? Most of the time you don't phone. That's interesting, isn't it? We still call it a phone, but we don't actually use it to make phone calls that much. We use it to text, to check quick things like Twitter or Facebook. If you read the Bible on your phone mainly, be careful that the way you use your phone doesn't end up influencing the way you end up using the Bible. Because if you use your phone mainly to just do quick fire things and then you open your Bible app, it's, it's going to be really easy to just be like, oh, I'll just treat the Bible a bit like I, t- I treat Twitter. And I listened to a fascinating podcast recently about um, the, the way that Bibles are actually, as books, were actually kind of put together and how that actually influences the way you read them. And one of the guys on the podcast was making the point that having just plugged study Bibles, I'm going to insert a, a note of caution, that what's happened is you originally had this text that was just text. Then verse numbers and chapters get added in. And over the last few hundred years you get cross references and footnotes and little things that explain and maps and so on and so suddenly something that you open a you open a novel and you think well I'll just start from the beginning and read through it you haven't got footnotes every page telling you how to read particular parts of it and so on so you read it like a book whereas when you open a lot of modern bibles it looks more like you're reading a dictionary than a book so it's very easy for the the way physically your bible looks to potentially influence the way that you actually approach it and we don't want to be approaching the Bible like a reference work, like a, like, like a dictionary. Because, yes, it's helpful for reference on certain things, but that's not primarily the way we want to be approaching it. So just be aware of how technology and the way that the Bible you're reading is actually presented to you can actually shape, sometimes subconsciously, the way you read it. I just thought it was a really interesting observation that guy made. Um, little note on translations. Find a translation that you find easy to read as your main Bible. Um, don't worry about let, let's not be too snobbish about which translations are like ESV is sometimes called the educated standard version and the NIV has been called the nearly infallible version let's not get there are some there are some obvious no-goes such as the Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible and the but generally speaking most most of the mainstream Bibles that you'll be able to get so things like the NIV ESV even the NLT the um what other ones, NRSV, RSV, will generally be pretty good. Um, all I'd say is if you get, if you have a translate, if your main translation of the Bible is something like the message, or I think NLT to a certain extent is a bit more, it's not quite as much of a paraphrase as the message, 
that's not a problem, but do, do make sure that you don't rely too much on the actual wording. Don't, don't put too much weight on the actual wording that's used in some of those translations, because it may well be that just, that's just a paraphrase, and that actually it doesn't necessarily reflect what the original languages would have said. A silly, silly example would be, I think I've heard someone suggest before that when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, that means that literally you can grab handfuls of the kingdom. The problem is, in the Greek, it doesn't say the kingdom of God is at hand. It just says the kingdom of God is near. And saying something is at hand is an English way of talking about that idea. So just be wary to not put too much weight on the actual wording in English. So if you've got particularly a, a slightly less literal translation, um, then I, I'd say I, as, a, as a general rule, I think Although I use the NIV, I think at the ESV, I think the NIV is a really is probably the one I would recommend to relatively new Christians who are who are at least rel- relatively educated in terms of literacy. I think it's a it's a nice straightforward one. But um, I'd say whatever the case, find, use a translation that you can read well, and do maybe just ask someone, um, ask one of the elders or so. On, is this such, is this a good one to use, or is this just a bit of a weird one? But in the main, the main versions that are out there will all be really good. Um, Another thing is be wary of novel interpretations. If you read the Bible and you come up with an interpretation and you discover no one throughout the whole of church history has ever understood that verse in that way, there is a 0.0000001% chance that you have just discovered the true meaning of that text and you should go away and write a PhD on it. But most likely is that you've probably got it wrong. And so just be wary of novel interpretations. The, when Jesus told his disciples to go and preach the gospel and, and the New Testament writers were preaching in their churches, their task wasn't to innovate. It wasn't to come up with new stuff. It was to be faithful, faithfully communicating what had already been told them. And so, yes, there are some passages in Scripture that are perhaps what we might call problem passages. People aren't too sure how to make sense of them. There are very, very, very few of those overall. In the main, you, throughout church history, the way that a particular passage has generally been agreed on will be what it means. So just be wary of any novel interpretations. And be wary of, um, it's often couched, it can sometimes be couched as, the Lord has personally revealed to me what this passage means. If they say that, but it contradicts the whole of church history, I would question whether the Lord has actually revealed that to them. So just be, don't be taken into stuff as well. Um, it's... Scripture is meant to be the bar by which we judge prophecy rather than prophecy the bar by which we judge scripture. So let's get it the right way around. Um, Ask elders. So one of the responsibilities of elders actually as part of their role is actually to have a bit more time to study the scriptures and to pray and to ministry of the word is one of what is one of the things that they're called to. So do ask the elders if you're if you're thinking what does this verse mean how am i meant to read this what does the bible say about that that is part of their responsibility before god is to teach the word of god so make i don't want to say make use of them that makes them sound like a tool but do ask the elders about um particular things what do we believe about that what does the bible teach about this that is part of what they're called to do by god um put it into practice so getting getting on to the last two now which are a, a bit more large scale put it into practice Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus says blessed are those who hear my words and do them he doesn't say blessed are those who hear my words and then go away and discuss them and never do anything about them he says blessed are those who hear my words and do them and they will be like those who build their house on the rock and when the winds and the storm come along they won't be shaken and then finally and I've put this finally because I think this is got to be central read prayerfully and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit 
We understand the scriptures because God enables us to understand and apply them to us. A, like I said earlier, a non-Christian can't truly understand the scriptures. They might be able to tell you what it means, but they won't be able to understand it in the way that affects the heart and changes us um, in, in the way that we can because of the help of the Holy Spirit. So there you go, there's a, a kind of real long list of stuff. So maybe those of you who are note takers have just kind of um, penciled it down. But let's, let's finish with some, some Q&A um, and then we'll set you free to go and, well, help set down the room first, but then to go and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. So questions, anyone? Was everything so clear that you don't need any questions? Yes. Surely. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in, say, Isaiah, how should we as the church approach them, given that we're... Okay, so how, how do we approach prophecies that were given for Israel? How yeah. do we approach those as a church? Should we call it a day and just leave <laughs> early? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, think, I think multiple ways. I think one thing is to recognise that that particular area of how, how do we think through promises that, when you read it in the, New, in, in the Old Testament, you think that looks like that is a literal promise for ethnic Israel and, and the land. How are we meant to think about that? I think there's a few ways. I think one of them is to have a certain amount of humility when we approach that, to think that actually this, this is one of those areas where people, very, very godly, clever people disagree. And so I think it's just important to make sure that we don't approach it saying, this is definitely the way we're meant to interpret it. Um, I think generally the kind of groups of churches that we're part of and this would probably be generally where where i would um side and i think generally where um church the church leaders would side is that a lot of the prophecies that are given for israel are fulfilled um they're fulfilled in the church and what i mean by that isn't that the church has replaced israel but that they're given to god's people and god's people in light of the new testament is the church which yes involves ethnic Israel who have confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, but also people from other nations and backgrounds as well. Um, so that would be, I think that's, that's the way that we would tend to look at those. Um, there are, to be honest, there are passages sometimes that you think, oh, how would, that does look like a literal promise. Um, I'd just say I would avoid bringing Old Testament prophecies onto the modern Israel-Palestine thing, because I think it it's just a da- it, I think it's a dangerous thing to do um, because I think you can you you can potentially end up in a position where you're you could end up defending something that actually goes completely against what God's saying. So I just tend to kind of not allow the way the Old Testament talks about that to influence the way that I would look at that whole area. But what I what I said at the beginning I recognise is that people will disagree on that, and I think even within certain within our groups of churches, even within eldership teams, there's disagreement on that particular issue i know of various new frontiers elders who will be quite strongly saying nope there is a divine light that right that israel have to the land whereas other elders within new frontiers would say nope that is not actually that's fulfilled now in the church so i'd say bottom line is probably approach it with a certain amount of caution um but i think that shouldn't stop us from seeing the glorious promises that god has made to his people as being fulfilled in the church whether or not we end up being wrong about the modern day ethnic um, israel thing does that make sense? Yeah. But it kind of almost requires a book to answer that, but that's where I'd go. Anything else? Slightly less <laughs> full on. <laughs> yeah? So when you were in Mark's discussion earlier about approaching prophecies in a positive light, you yeah. Christian or non-Christian, 
what would you say to um, your non-Christian friends who mm. kind of say, okay, well, I haven't had that experience with Jesus, so where do I start? Yeah. Um, I think it... I probably wouldn't want to convince them of the truthfulness of Scripture in order to get them saved. So it depends what if the, if they're asking me stuff about well, what do you do with this passage? What do you do with that passage? That's that's different, and I try and answer as best as I could. Um, I think my bottom line would be in terms of if if they're thinking why should I be convinced that this is true? Um, I would want to try and convince them that Jesus has been raised from the dead, rather than try and convince them that the whole of Scripture is true. And I think the reason for that is, although I don't believe this, imagine you were to get to Judgment Day and find out, actually, there were mistakes in the Bible, but Jesus has still been raised from the dead. Then not everything shatters apart. So I don't believe that, but if I were to arrive at Judgment Day and God say, actually, you know what, there were sections in the Bible that actually didn't happen and and so on, but Jesus has been raised from the dead, the gospel is still true. Whereas whereas, um, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead... In a sense, you know what, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, even if the whole of the Old Testament is true, we're still in big trouble. So I think I'd, I'd want to try and get around it that way. But if, if the person's just asking from a kind of curiosity, like how on earth do you make sense of that? I would probably take each question individually and try and think that through and try and provide a good answer. Because I don't think it means that we just say, nope, not answering that, Going for I'm going to convince you of the resurrection. But I think it means if the reason the person's asking the question is, why on earth should I believe that all, everything that you believe i want to start with jesus rather than try and convince them of everything else and then get on to jesus does that make sense but i would approach the actual questions as kind of questions individually i think there are some good books out there um i know that oh, what's his name lee strobel has written some good books that's kind of trying to defend the historicity of the resurrection but there's another book called i haven't actually read it but it's been recommended by good people so i trust them i think it's 101 contradictions in the bible cleared up but i can't remember his name though but that's i think so there are tools out there to help in terms of approaching those kind of questions but i think it's it's good to discern why the person's asking that are they coming from a point of view of i'm genuinely curious i'd like to find out this or is it kind of coming from a seriously you can't believe that really and i think if that's where it's coming from i prefer to try and convince them that jesus has been raised from the dead and why i believe that rather than why this particular passage works um does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely yeah i I take them to more than what i was able to go through um today because i didn't really touch on defending that but um there are i mean there are good there are good um people called apologists which doesn't mean they apologize all the time it means they defend the truth of um the faith so people like guys names like william lane cray gary habermas is another one if you just type their names on Google, on Google or YouTube, you'll find loads of resources from them. Um, the Ravi Zacharias is another one. So, uh, in fact, on the Bible, Amy, a, a lady called Amy Or Ewing, uh, which A M Y, obviously for Amy, or O R R, and then Ewing, I think, is E W I N G. Um, she's got some really good stuff on the Bible from an apologetics point of view. So, they'd be some good resources to go to. But um, yeah, does that help a bit more? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, I go for it. No, finish, finish the question. Yeah. But then you were saying, like, everything in Acts 5, we should yeah. say, okay, this is the time for us, right? And yeah. you did clarify, okay, but then 
there are certain things that don't necessarily explicitly refer to us, they yep. refer to individuals. But then there are still passages in Acts 5, yep. um, which is it, like, so when Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with <laughs> He's gone there. Yeah. So, um, that, so that, that particular passage, I think as, as a church, that's something that we talked about a, a few years ago. We didn't conclude that we shouldn't obey that passage. We did, so it wasn't, we didn't look at it and think, oh, that was just something contextual or so on. But I think where we landed was that the, the truth that that passage was communicating through head coverings, in our context, if we were to directly apply that with all of everything that's going around culturally, the head coverings would actually communicate something different to what that passage was actually wanting. Um, and so there is, I think there's a helpful principle, which is we obey the commands um, in the New Testament but that actually sometimes there will be symbols that are used in those passages that would be slightly different in our culture. And I think it's, just, it's worth being aware of that. So that particular passage, I think, I think that's where we landed, wasn't it, as on, on that particular issue, that we, we, obey the, we obey what that passage is trying to tell us, but that we, we felt that the actual, what you might call literal interpretation of it or applying head coverings in our culture and context would communicate something very different. So in that head coverings in that context would have communicated authority submission the correct ordering of stuff whereas head coverings in our context probably reminds people more of um perhaps islamic extremism or or um the putting down of women whereas that wouldn't have been what was communicated in that particular context does that make sense yeah um but just on the on the on the um it might have just been the way you phrased it on the we don't that we don't interpret literally the acts one to four we we interpret the bible literally the whole of it but interpreting it literally doesn't necessarily mean what's what's called the plain meaning so if you if i'm saying my wife has a nose like the tower of Mo, uh, tower of moses that doesn't mean she literally has that but the the literal interpretation of that is she has a beautiful nose whereas the plain meaning of it is her nose is quite is actually a tower um, so we would take those, those first four acts, we'd still interpret literally. It's just that we realize we're in a different part of the story, which doesn't mean that the commands in those acts don't apply to us. It's just that they may apply to us in a slightly different way. And so we then read that through, through being in Act 5 rather than as if we were in Act 2. Does that make sense? A guy called um, N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright, um, wrote a book called Scripture and the Authority of Good. Of God? Good. <laughs> scripture and the authority of god which is quite helpful um he kind of goes into some of the details on that of thinking through how can a story be authoritative how do we actually apply that and that's a really helpful resource if you wanted to look at that a bit more